Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing Podcast. Hopefully the sound is is a really high quality because I'm a person with Ron Leathers, our very first ever, our brand new chief conservation officer. And um, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to we're going to kick off 2021. Boy, that's the first Oof. time I've said that out loud. Yeah, I've written it a couple <laughs> times, but it sounds weird in person. It, it does. I, it makes me feel old <laughs> thinking about uh, the decades that have been around now. Uh, but but earlier this week, so Ron, you're in um, day number five. Day number five. <laughs> earlier this week, you were you were officially named the organization's first ever, and you heard me right, folks, first ever chief conservation officer, Ron Leathers. And, and to quote uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever President and CEO Howard Vincent, um, this is what he wrote in the press release announcing Ron's position. So um, I, I don't often read during a podcast, but I am going to read Howard's quote just because uh, I think it, it articulates the, the goal here pretty well. As the organization continues to grow to meet the habitat needs of our cherished uplands, the National Board of Directors and I saw the need to better align our organization's leadership with our conservation delivery functions under one shared vision. Throughout his career, Ron Leathers has demonstrated a savvy business acumen that's grounded in biological science and coupled with an unwavering passion for our favorite upland birds. I'm thrilled for Ron to lead our habitat mission into 2021 <laughs> and beyond. So to the goal, my goal of today's podcast is is really, you know, you this is your second episode on the podcast because you were on the uh, very good but lengthy sage grouse initiative. It took it, 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 yeah, I was at our team meeting in Iowa two summers ago yes. when we could a- actually when all we got gather. together. But it, that one to me, it did take forever. But it was one of the more fascinating ones, at least for me. Um, it was a really fascinating conversation. That time flew by about sage grouse and the biology, and um, so I'll, I'll point listeners back. Um, to that episode to learn about sage grouse. This episode, you're going to learn about Ron Leathers, uh, the first ever CCO for the organization. We're, uh, so we're going to talk about Ron's um, kind of childhood. We're not going to break it down like Freudian-wise. <laughs> That's good. I'm not prepared for that. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think I am either. But, but we are going to talk about um, where you grew up. Uh, kind of your family upbringing and dogs, hunting, uh, where you went to school, uh, and your, your career to this point. So, so folks get a sense of who's got this position and, and, um, kind of your sensibilities and and interests and, and some of the things you've done over the, over the years, um, couple of decades with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So the story begins in a state that I have, <laughs> side note, I, I've been reading a ton of fiction about Wyoming. Oh, boy. Uh, the Longmire series. Oh, yeah. So I'm five books into the Longmire series. Have you read it? I haven't. Nope. And so based in uh, Wyoming. And I am eight books 
into the CJ Box Joe Pickett. Wow. Yeah. Have you read that? Those one? are great. Yeah. Yeah. CJ did a nice job with those books and, and really portrayed it pretty well, actually. There's a lot of cool spots in the West that he brought in. And I actually grew up not far from, from a spot in one of those one of those books. Really? Yep. So I'm I'm from Laramie. Okay. Uh, Laramie kind of sits in a high mountain valley, and to the west is the Medicine Bow Range. And then on the west side of the Medicine Bow Range, he, he portrayed Joe Pickett in Saratoga. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just about 40 miles from my hometown. Yeah. what well, It was um, Saddle. Oh, what's in his Saddle Bow? Boy, it's been too long. Really? Have yeah. you read them all? Um, I think so, yep. Yeah. But again, yeah. it's been a while since I read any of those books, but... Yeah, really cool, really cool depiction. Easy I want to go to Wyoming. Well, come on out, we'll take it. <laughs> well, okay, so you got to pick a spot though, because there's 160,000 square miles of that state. So pick a spot you want to visit first. Tell me about growing up in Wyoming. Well, you know, it, it realistically it wasn't a heck of a lot different than growing up anywhere else. You, you that's your norm, and uh, boy, mm. that becomes a part of who you are, though. Um, I grew up, you know, I talked about that Medicine Bow Mountain, that mm-hmm. forest uh, to the west of me, and, and I spent the majority of my life in those mountains, um, mm. elk hunting and, and fishing with my dad and camping up there. And, you know, from Boy Scouts as a kid, um, all the way up until just a couple of years ago, I elk hunted up there again. Um, it's been a big part of the fabric that made me up. So, you know, and, and boy, it just... The, the state's unique, and, and you realize that when you get a little bit later in life because of the lack of people, mm-hmm. um, kind of the, the isolation and the wilderness experience that's really easy to get in that state. And, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about some of my experiences, but I moved straight from Wyoming to Washington, D.C., which is Culture Shock 101. <laughs> Um, and I remember the first night when I sat in Washington, D.C. on my back porch and I looked up to try to find the mountain range that was in the distance and, and realized I couldn't even see the stars, man. Mm. Just, um, and, and those are the things that you, you, you don't realize are there until you don't get to see them every day. That, that um, the lightness or the darkness of night when you live in a rural area, <clears throat> it, it, it is startling, right? So I... I didn't live anywhere near the mountains, but I had that that exact same experience growing up in the UP because you go outside at night, particularly in the winter, but at, but at night, right. And, and you go outside and that you can see all the stars and that whole Milky Way lays out in front of you. Right. It's incredible. And you, in, in my first trip living to in a big city it was St. Cloud, Minnesota. <laughs> so not that big, but dramatically different sure. from the UP. And and you're right, the just the street lights and the lights of the city wash out the night sky. Yep. Yeah, it's it is different for sure. And the sounds. I mean you don't realize what what silence sounds like and mm-hmm. until you don't have it anymore either. Mm-hmm. And then when you go back it sounds eerie but really cool. Yeah. You you talked about growing up elk hunting, being in the mountains. And over when I was, when I just started with Pheasants Forever, Wyoming's a state that doesn't, it didn't pop up in, in when we were writing the forecast, pheasant hunting forecast. It's not a state that is, you know, a top 20 pheasant destination nope. state, right? Nope. So it's not a state that historically I've thought a lot about for upland birds. But as I've grown to appreciate more species wyoming immediately comes up as having a ton of diverse species of upland for sure. birds. um 
you talked about growing up elk hunting. When when did you become an upland bird hunter? Well, I'm that came a lot later in life. I'm what we call an adult onset pheasant hunter. Mm. Uh, I didn't pick that up when I was a kid. You know, we shot a couple sage grouse here and there when we had the opportunity. I just kind of excuse, I think, for my dad to get us out of the house and give my mom a break. But, uh, you know, I didn't really pick up a shotgun until I moved to Nebraska and I was 25 years old. Mm. And I taught myself how to pheasant hunt without really a mentor or experience or a dog or anything and just kind of stomped around the prairies around Lincoln, Nebraska and, and uh, didn't get a bird for two years, uh, <laughs> despite all the trying. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was not part of, part of the fabric when I grew up. It, mm. was, it was elk hunting and deer hunting and, and antelope hunting and, and that was it. Have you subsequently been back to Wyoming to bird hunt? Um, I've not bird hunted Wyoming since I oh, let's go. Since I moved out. I'm ready. <laughs> let's bring it. Uh, all right. So you, you talked about um, going to to DC was the first place you left, but you went to University of Wyoming right after high school, right? I, well, I, I, at least that's my assumption based on the sticker on your truck. Yep, I was uh, I was a cowboy at UW. Um, I did a I made a real brief stop actually at West Point um, huh. and blew out a knee uh, before I could finish work out there. So moved back to Wyoming and finished my, my undergrad work in Laramie. Blew out any, were you playing a sport? Uh, yeah, kind of. I was doing the military training piece of it all. Oh, okay. There's a long okay. story behind <laughs> a piece of cartilage that shouldn't have been in my knee. And, huh. um, but yeah, it was, it was a bad deal. And that ended up, uh, ending a, a not so promising military career and huh. sending me back to Wyoming. Okay. And then University of Wyoming, you got a degree in. Yep, I've got a I've got a, bas- a bachelor's in wildlife science from UW. Okay, um, finished that up and then kind of looked around and and wanted to. Uh, you just needed a job at that point in your career, and mm-hmm. some came open in Washington D.C. And um, I'd never been to Washington D.C. I think the biggest city I'd been to at that point was probably Denver. Um, and so I don't even know what made me apply for that job, uh, but it was with the association of fish and wildlife agencies. Um, and they hired me sight unseen, did a a phone interview and flew out to DC, uh, from Laramie, Wyoming sight unseen and landed. (laughs) And this is, this has got to be circa 2000, 1999, 90. Okay. 1999 flew out there, uh, landed in Dulles and drove in through that technology corridor in Dulles. And uh, I remember just thinking to myself, what did I do? (laughs) That I am out here and know nobody. I, you know, I rented a room from somebody I'd never met and in downtown DC. uh, No, I lived in Alexandria, Virginia. Okay. So across the river. And, uh, yeah, just made a, made a go of it and did it all just kind of boy on faith. Hmm. And it, it was a great experience. I worked for the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, got a little introduction to some education and outreach work. Some, um, we were doing a license automation project hmm. and helping the state fish and wildlife agencies. You know, when you buy a license online now mm-hmm. and you can go in and get it through a terminal at, at the time, it was all handwritten licenses and states weren't harvesting that data. They weren't able to, to use it for recruitment efforts and retention efforts and really for any of their, their hunter analysis work. And so it was a big deal to get all that integrated and digitized. And that <clears throat> speaking from the marketing side of things, and, you know, we haven't talked about this specifically, but, you know, we, the organization's always gone after like pheasant stamp 
buyers and yeah. trying to drill down in the south um, who are quail hunters. And that's even more difficult because not only, as you, you talked about, even before two, the 2000s, nobody was doing this digitally. None, none of the states were. No. And they were even obviously less information about what people were hunting, right? So, you know, an elk hunter trying to get them to join pheasants forever is a different proposition than somebody that bought a pheasant stamp sure. in trying to get them to join. So, so that work laying the groundwork with, uh, that you did 99, you know, had multiple benefits down the road for all sorts of things that you probably couldn't even have foreseen. No, at that point it was about saving some dollars. It was about, you know, there's some other benefits to it that, that go well beyond just the marketing components of it mm-hmm. as well. But yeah, we couldn't see the, the ways that people are using that data now when we developed it. It was just a matter of getting it in the system. And from there, you bounced back west. Well. <laughs> or was there some a stop in between? There was sort well, it depends on how you define Nebraska. Okay. Um, it, you know, it could be Midwest, it could be west. But, oh, it's uh, west of D.C., though. Right, for sure. <laughs> No, I, I had done a bunch of policy work when I was in D.C. as well. So, you know, I was a new grad out of college, and, and the other duties as a sign clause really kicks in when you're fresh out of college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they sent me all over the place to do policy work that nobody had time for or wanted to do. And, and I really developed a, a huge passion for legislation and policy and advocacy while I was out there. Hmm. Loved that experience in D.C. Um, but uh, I met... Well, there's two things going on here. First of all, my girlfriend lived nowhere near Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was going to school in North Dakota and uh, needed to find a way to, to get back within a reasonable driving so, distance. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about Sarah. I'm talking about Sarah. <laughs> right. yep, so. I, sh- I could have put my foot in my mouth. It was a different. No, that's, it's a great <laughs> question. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for giving me the chance to clarify. <laughs> it, and she's from Wyoming originally. She's too. from Wyoming. So did you yep. guys meet at the university? Yep. We went, uh, we went to UW together. Uh, when we graduated... Within two days after graduating, uh, I was off to D.C. and mm-hmm. she headed up to North Dakota to go to go to physical therapy school. Okay, so kind of tried to find a way back to the middle, uh, and I met a man named Bill Baxter, who became one of really the mentors in my career. Hmm. Um, he was doing policy work for Nebraska Game and Parks Commission, um, and. He asked if I had some time to come back to D.C. and help, or come back to Nebraska, rather, and help him do some stateside legislative work and work on farm bill policy hmm. for the Game of Parks Commission. And, uh, you know, put that metric together. I could get closer to home. I could get closer to the girlfriend, and, and everything just made sense. And uh, so I moved back to Nebraska for a couple years and got to spend some time uh, in that state. Again, that's where I took up this this craze of, of pheasant hunting uh, mm-hmm. at the time and—, and um, were you just in got, Lincoln? I was in Lincoln, yep, yeah. which is a, a great place to, to get a chance to go out. And, you know, the, the CRP map program that we had at mm-hmm. the time uh, really opened up a lot of p- private land to public access. The mm-hmm. state did a great job of, of managing habitat on all those spots. And I'm sure had I had a dog and known what the heck I was doing, I, 
I could have shot a lot of birds, but I didn't have either uh, in my favor, but I had a lot of persistence. So for folks that hear the word CRP map, Conservation Reserve Program, Managed Access Program, yep. right? So it was the predecessor to what is now Open Fields and Waters in, in Nebraska. And we've talked about that particular walk-in program on this um, podcast many a times. In my view, it's the single best state-driven walk-in program in the country. For sure. One of the flagship programs. If I talk too much about one state, my other, my other state coordinators <laughs> chew me out. But yeah, absolutely. They've done an excellent job over the years. You know, Nebraska is largely privately held. So if they don't have access, if we as hunters don't have access to those private lands, we're just we're not going to hunt. Mm-hmm. So it's been a big deal in keeping people in the outdoors. It, circling back just real quickly, uh, you said your degree is in biology, right? Yep. From Wyoming. And when you were in D.C. with the association, you kind of it became passionate about policy, legislative. That So did you do any sort of policy work when you were in school, or did that kind of surprise you when you it were in D.C.? It just surprised me. It came oh. out of nowhere. My, my dad will tell you it's in my DNA. Um, he'll, he'll tell you I'm a biologist by training but a politician by nature. Huh. Uh, but I... You know, I, I didn't expect that any, at any point in my life until it showed up. What hooked you? I, I couldn't tell you the moment, to be honest with huh. you. Um, I remember going, I had to go, they were going to delist the links or something. And I, I went to a, uh, went over to the meeting and they had canceled it and went to a different building. And I was walking around the Capitol and this was pre 9-11. You could walk around anywhere you wanted in Washington, D.C. Mm. I was under the tunnels in the halls of Congress and just looking around at the history and, and I can't remember who walked by, but you know, one of the, one of the big time politicians at the time walked by and I realized I was in that seat of power and it was just intoxicating. Mm. Uh, so just a cool experience and, and that got after me. Mm. And so then I was able to follow that and, and Baxter to his credit, recognized that passion in me and was able to, to harness that and bring it to DC or it drink to Nebraska. Nebraska. So what'd you do on a daily basis in Nebraska? That was a cool job. So uh, we developed a conservation legislation network, uh, where we really got all the, the sportsmen's groups in the state to give us an email address. I seem to be, everything goes back to data here, but <laughs> <laughs> well, that is something that folks should know about you. And that, I mean, when we put the job description together, one of the words in there was business or one of the phrases, business acumen. And you, you know, we will get to this later in the discussion, but you have your, an MBA, right? You know, you do have, uh, you know, we, it's kind of a needle in the haystack job description, biology, business acumen, policy, edu- you, you know, for lack of a better term, you're the needle, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that you do have a really diverse background that fits a lot of those. So I uh, didn't mean to interrupt you there. No. So go ahead and, and you do have that analytical mind that that'll be beneficial. Yeah, certainly. And it, it was in Nebraska that, that, you know, we had all these these uh, sportsmen's groups that wanted to be active and didn't have a way to kind of keep track of what was happening at the state capitol um, and and really federally as well. And so we I ran around to every fish fry and every wild game feed and every hmm. single event that I could to sportsmen's groups and just sold them on the idea of signing up for it, whether that was the group themselves with one email address or every individual in the group. We took all their information hmm. uh, and put it in a distribution list and just provided them information about legislation that was pertinent to conservation. Hmm. 
Great job. Uh, a really cool opportunity to meet some some great people. I ate some really good fish and some terrible <laughs> fish. <laughs> but You know, it, it's evolved because everybody eats prime rib now at those right. meetings, right? Yeah, I'd be a lot bigger guy if that <laughs> was the case back then. So I'm assuming this is where they, I know where you leap to next, right, to Pheasants Forever is your next job. But there had been an intersection there where you met somebody through that job at PF? Well, it, there's a couple things that happened. Um, again, trying to, trying to get closer to the girlfriend, uh, recognized <laughs> at that point. It does come back it's to Sarah multiple works, times, right? doesn't it? Um, but I, re- I also recognized I needed some continuing education at that point. So okay. a BS wasn't going to get me too far down the road. I was going to have to get that master's degree. And I um, worked with Steve Riley at the time uh, and Bill Baxter, and they both encouraged me to find uh, a chance to go to grad school. Hmm. And I wrote a couple grants and actually ended up getting my grad school paid for, which is super helpful, mm-hmm. um, and needed to find a school that had an entomology program because I worked on that CRP map program. Mm-hmm. We, we swept all those fields for bugs, which are brood food mm-hmm. for all of our favorite upland birds, and did a lot of comparisons between managed fields and unmanaged fields. And uh, surprise, South Dakota State University had an entomology program uh, that could help me get what I needed to get done. And it was halfway to North Dakota. Again, yeah, yeah you're Sarah cutting was. the distance. Yep. So uh, huh. spent a couple of years up in uh, SDSU doing uh, my master's degree up there. Oh, that, you know, it resonates with me because my brother got his master's and his PhD essentially in um, – ecology but it was focused on entomology where he's in these fields down near iowa city with whiteout and he had to paint half of the side of these beetles and number them and then go back and find them did you have to ever do that no i didn't i wasn't painting beetles we were we were killing things and and counting them um and i just sounds more fun than my brother oh man i don't know painting painting beetles sounds cool (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah, it was. We did a lot of that, just running through prairies with sweep nets. Mm. I mean, landowners were looking at us like we were crazy. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, a sweep net's essentially a butterfly net. So you've got a couple technicians running through your CRP field with butterfly nets, and yeah, it sounds crazy. <laughs> but we so, really so SDSU. So I'm tracking. This is probably. Well, this has got to be the early 2000s, right? Yep. So I was there 2000, uh, 2001, 2002. And then right at the end of 2002, I graduated and uh, was supposed to go back to Nebraska and the Game of Parks Commission went through a hiring freeze Hmm. and they couldn't bring me on. And uh, so, again, I needed a job. Um, Sarah had moved to South Dakota at this point, so Hmm. we were close and wasn't really interested in in separating up again. And uh, PF opened up a job in... Brookings, oh, well, not in Brookings, in, in uh, eastern South Dakota, we had four new jobs called Farmville Biologists. Mm-hmm. And this was a concept that we had done uh, some test work on in Nebraska when they started the Farmville Wetlands Pilot Program through CRP uh, a few years before that uh, to put biologists out in USDA offices to sell the program. And it worked there. And I thought, man, I could probably do that job. Hmm. And uh, it was in eastern South Dakota. So I was able to come on board uh, at the time. Um, Ken Higgins was my, one of my professors at SDSU, who was an ex-board member of Pheasants Forever, and mm-hmm. just a passionate guy uh, about, the, about the organization, about our mission. And he said, you got to do this. You got to jump on this, this bandwagon. It's going to be something big. 
And so I uh, applied for the job, interviewed the job, and, and started actually on, uh, what, January 8th or 9th, 2003. So we do have the exact same day, exact right? Same so it's day. January 6th, 2003. That's what it is. So I looked it up again uh, because it was – I started on Monday, right? We started yep. in 2003, January 6th was the, mon- was the Monday. Okay. Which was six days – before the, the very first, first pheasant the, fest, yes. right, January twelfth, two thousand and three. So, so we did start on the exact same right. day. So you were it, one of the first four farm bill biologists, right? So yep. Morlock, Matt Morlock, Matt Morlock. Oh, and who are the other two? Uh, Chris Goldade and Scott Ingoldson. Okay, um, yeah, a good group of guys, and, and we really got to run around eastern South Dakota and, and try to make a program work that we didn't exactly know how it was going to work. Uh, but again, I, I keep. I get these, I've had a lot of opportunities to create things through the years, and it's always fun when you get to, at that point, kind of didn't have a lot of rules. It was Mm -hmm. go do great things for wildlife and and help USDA, and and so we were able to do that for a couple years. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so, and how many years were you in that role? I was in that role for two years. Two years. Yep. And then you got the called uh, to move again well yeah. <laughs> yeah so government grants job came open um we we finally reached that point where we had three million dollars of grant revenue hmm. and uh our cfo at the time said boy that that's more than we can manage using our existing infrastructure um needed to so this is 2005 2005 and we were at three million dollars in government <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I'm laughing because of where we are at today, right? It's startling. The growth curve is significant mm-hmm. since that point. And, and it took a lot of foresight to realize the importance of putting that position on at $3 million. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's been an important position. The whole department has been pretty critical to getting that infrastructure built to allow us to grow mm-hmm. at the rate that we're growing and to allow that field team to deliver mission and dollars at the rate that they've delivered it since we started this in 2005. Mm. So what was that conversation like? You you're, you apply for this job in the Twin Cities, and Sarah's finally, you and Sarah are finally, to, are you married place. at this point? We're married at this, play, yeah. At this point, yeah. Um, Sarah actually was born in Rochester. Minnesota. Minnesota. Okay. Her family is from, had their farms around the Twin Cities, mm. and her, her parents had moved to... Uh, Wyoming when she was six or something. So okay. she had family here still. And so it was a pretty easy sales job to her uh, to say, hey, your grandma lives 45 minutes from the office mm. and, and you have some cousins and aunts and uncles around there. And it, not a hard sales job okay. at all. Probably one of the easier <laughs> ones in my life. <laughs> well, that's, that's fine. I didn't realize that she had uh, roots in Southern Minnesota. Yep. She, yeah. her family was all from around here. They were, they had a couple farms um, or her mom's farm is actually right on the border of um, uh, the apple farm down in Jordan, and I can't think of Minnesota Harvest. Hmm. Big time apple farm on the the western slope of that hill, and, right? And her mom's farm is on the east side. Huh. I think they make hard cider there too. They do make hard cider. That's pretty good. <laughs> it is. It's a rumor. <laughs> uh, all right. So from 2004, you get that job, and then you proceed into public finance director, right? So so let's talk about um, some of the highlights. We had, we've alluded to the growth in government grants um, over the course of, you know, that that basically the decade and a half, right? 15-year time yep. frame from 3 million to, to where are we today? About 45. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, and that's that's a tribute to the field team definitely that, that are writing grants from you know coast to coast these days, right? For sure. Yep, we've got grant dollars and have recently all the way from California to Pennsylvania and many 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 spots in between. Um, you know, when we took when I started as the grants coordinator, the majority of our activity was in the state of Minnesota. We had uh, a few NACA grants here and there, had some partnerships with the Legislative Commission for Minnesota Resources. LCCMR. It, used, yep, it was LCMR at the time. They added citizens later in mm-hmm. a great move. Um, and then some grants in Nebraska with the uh, Game and Parks Commission. But it was pretty, pretty unrefined at the time. Um, we... Had certainly just started the Farm Bill program. Uh, you know, there are four biologists. We're up to almost 200 now. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe over 200 now. i got to check my, my numbers here again. Yeah, I'm not sure how many exact Farm Bill biologists, but I do have one of the stats. That we're up to, of our 380 employees, we're up to 268 people with biologists Boy, in their title. Can you believe that? Yeah. Some incredible talent. Uh, it, one of the big things that I think about over you know that 15 year period when you're kind of evaluating grants and working through the grants program is um the sage grouse initiative and and i don't think listeners always appreciate or understand how much pheasants forever and quail forever do beyond our two favorite birds pheasants and quail um and talk about because sage grouse really put us on the map beyond pheasants and quail, didn't it? It, it, it? Tell us about that conversation and, and how that came together. Yeah, I mean, there were a number of things that um, that went into the organization embracing the sage-grouse initiative. Probably the largest part of that was just our success in the farm bill uh, world and the fact that USDA wanted to, wanted to bite at that apple mm. uh, and they wanted to extend it beyond what we were doing in the Midwest for pheasants. Uh, we'd really pioneered that concept of, of private lands technical assistance. It'd been hugely successful. Uh, the metrics were off the chart for that. It was really, really helpful to USDA's field service offices, and producers loved the concept. And um, a couple folks came to us and, and asked us to help. Um, Tim Griffiths from Sage Grouse Initiative. My doppelganger. Yeah, one of, the, <laughs> one of the most energetic human beings you'll ever met. I think he was on that call. With the, the, the he was on that podcast, podcast right? Yep. Um, but yeah, he and, and Dave Noggle uh, came to one of our staff meetings and started talking about working together uh, to do great things for sage grouse. Um, you know, there were a couple other folks that were out there in the, in the ether talking about the same thing. Jim Range, who was a, mm. a great conservationist, um, had pinned us down and asked us to, uh, well, Jim didn't ask much. Jim told us we were going to engage in, in sage grouse conservation. And, um, you know, to our executive team's credit, they recognized the crossover with all of our other favorite birds. Um, they recognized that we had the ability to do something not a lot of other conservation organizations had the ability to do at the time. Mm. And uh, they gave us the gave us the green light to go ahead and move forward with Sage Grouse Initiative. And then leap forward a couple years and, and add another bird to the mix. That's right. Let's go check out lesser prairie chickens in the in the Midwest, the the uh, southern Midwest, southern Great Plains rather. Um, you know, another bird that just, just needed some help and, and another opportunity for us to help producers. Uh, you know, these are all largely private land birds mm. and, you know, private landowners are where we can make major impacts and 
we really made a lot of a lot of growth in that area. And it, largely, and I'm putting words in USDA's mouth, so um, you can correct me <laughs> or they can correct me. But largely, the success of the sage grouse initiative because it was it was a little bit of a leap. You know, there's there was a lot of momentum around farm bill biologists connected to CRP, right? Yep. Planting something. Whereas sage grouse was a little bit of a leap because it was, it wasn't necessarily planting anything. It was rangeland and doing different practices to influence bird populations that, again, for a simple mind, it wasn't planting anything. It was, you know, um, putting uh, flags on barbed wire. It was protecting lex. It was working with ranchers to find kind of a common ground to keep them on the property producing beef, you know, cattle, right? And while finding ways to improve and protect areas for sage grouse. So it was a little bit of a leap, but we were kind of the intermediaries or one of the intermediaries between the federal government and the the range, the the landowners, to to find success there for everybody, right? Yeah, you're right. It was a stretch. I mean, this wasn't the Conservation Reserve Program. This is EQIP, which is a whole new product in our world. Um, And in the Midwest, EQIP, you know, at the time had been used for a lot of of livestock uh, practices that didn't have wildlife benefits. So we had to wrap our brain around the idea of doing cross-fencing and water development for cattle to spread grazing pressure more evenly across pastures and then leave residue for nesting birds and you know a lot of these practices that intuitively looking back just make a heck of a lot of sense Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the time you know it took us a little bit of time to figure out how to how to move in that direction Uh, but it just opened so many doors you know we moved from sage grouse where we were doing range stuff to lesser prairie chicken where we're doing range stuff and then you know a couple years ago we got the call to really engage deeply with usda on quail bob white quail work uh, which just hits right to the core of mm-hmm. of our mission, and um, so it became not to cut you off, nope. but it became so the sage and you can, folks can listen back, look for the working lands for wildlife episode of on the wing podcast, but. The sage grouse initiative was sort of the pilot program, which then became the umbrella program, which is now known as Working Lands for Wildlife, and really where we um, added beef to that is as you were heading was with quail definitely yep and you know it goes our quail partnerships in working lands are just they've been hugely successful to the to putting biologists in in landscapes where there are quail helping producers you know one of the really cool projects we work on is in the grasslands quail range so that center part of the country that's in um, illinois ohio uh, really through Virginia, that. Arkansas, uh, Indiana, North Carolina, yep. Missouri. Uh, you know, one of the problems we have, there is a lot of fescue that's been planted for mm. for grazing cattle. And we need to convert that over to a chick. Uh, a quail chick's pretty tiny, mm-hmm. right? And they got pretty tiny little legs. And so to run through a big mat of, of fescue just doesn't work for those guys. You've got to have some open ground. You've got to have access to invertebrate those bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're teaching landowners how to plant native grasses and how to graze that successfully. Uh, and we're doing great things for it. You know, we always talk about good for the herd, good for the bird. Mm-hmm. We're doing great things for beef production, uh, for cattle production in those areas and, and getting benefits for, for all of our favorite upland birds as well. 
And the, the cool thing about working lands for wildlife, there's not one program for quail, there's two. Yeah. You, you talked about the bobwhite quail in the grasslands, but there's also bobwhite quail in pine savannas. And, and we've got biologists working on that program. Yep. Too. Lots of crossover in that southern part of the range, Florida, Georgia. You know, it that's it, kind of an odd area. It goes all the way up to New Jersey mm-hmm. and kind of flows back through that deep south. Uh, doing great stuff for, for not just Bob White, but, you know, all those associated critters that go with Bob White. It's go for tortoises and uh, just lots of other things that are benefiting from the work we're doing now in those areas. So we, we've talked a lot about the biologists that are working with private landowners to improve private land for our favorite birds and beyond, right? Because, yeah, we, we're focused on pheasants, quail, sage grouse, lesser prairie chickens, but... Y- you know, we're having those habitat efforts are benefiting sharp tails and gopher tortoises right. and pollinators and monarchs and golden wing warblers. So it, what, what always strikes me is something I'm incredibly proud of is we're an organization that is like half driven and I'm using half just because it's a big round number, right? Half driven by private lands conservation, right? But the other half of your role as your previous role, and well, truthfully, your role going forward too, right? Is public lands. And huge component of that is, you know, the process of land acquisition. So over the history of the organization, what folks, you know, they maybe have heard us talk about, but, you know, we've bought more than 200,000 acres of property that is now everyone's public lands Um, through some of the big ones are legacy amendment in Minnesota, right? I mean, with the advent of the 2008 legacy amendment, that's, that's been a mat, that's been a game changer for permanent land on the landscape in the state of Minnesota, sixteen to twenty million dollars a year since the origination of the of the legacy fund uh, has gone into public land acquisition through Pheasants Forever and restoration of those public lands and restoration of other publicly owned lands that just needed some work mm. uh, to get them back to product productivity for pheasants. It, and what's startling is you think, well, there's always the statement, well, you can't buy enough public. You can't buy enough land to make public to really solve the issue. And I still believe that to be true. But so 2008, the legacy amendment took hold. And so property started being acquired and habitat started being added to the landscape in 2009. Here we are, you know, 11 years in. Now, it hasn't solved the issue, but I absolutely 100% believe it's making a difference in creating more birds, improving water quality, soil health, all sorts of wildlife um, are are responding. Not to mention, you think about in the year of 2020 when uh, the outdoors have been embraced like never before. Thank goodness we have all this extra, not extra, but all this added public land for people to run around on Absolutely. this fall. Because you, you spent some time in Minnesota hunting public lands, and I've never seen it more embraced than it has been this year. No, I passed over a lot of areas this year to, to get to another spot because there was a truck that's been parked there all morning. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were out and about. And, you know, as a hunter, you go, well, shoot, i got to find the next spot. But as a conservationist, uh, 
Well, that's really cool. Right. It relates back to your very first job, right? Yeah, absolutely. We want those people in the field. We want every sportsman engaged and active in, you know, in the field and caring about their natural resources. But that's when we're really going to make impacts on birds. You you know, you you said it a little bit ago, and, and it's kind of part of where we're trying to go as an organization. We realistically can't buy enough land to to sustain these populations but we can create cores mm-hmm. and then we can surround them with private habitat but the really cool thing is when we can engage those communities when people are passionate about those areas mm. and they can protect those areas that's when we make habitat impacts that's when we make long-term population impacts that's when we sustain populations so when you talk, start talking about cores and communities i immediately think of uh one of the guys that started the same day we did Matt Morlock and and a legendary name that not everybody knows is legendary, but should be known as legendary is Emma, Emmett Lenahan. Yeah, the Aberdeen uh, Pheasant Coalition. Exactly. So tell us about the Aberdeen Pheasant Coalition. But at the city of Aberdeen gets, or the, the community of Aberdeen gets it. Um, a significant portion of the economic activity in Aberdeen, South Dakota, comes from bird hunting. And they understand that and they embrace that. Um, like several years ago, uh, the community started to get together to say, hey, if we lose these populations, if we lose these hunters that come into the community and spend money in the hotels and in the cafes and in the bars, we're going to lose a portion of who we are and we're going to lose a significant portion of our added revenue. It, we, we can't fool ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, ag, ag, the ag economy drives these places. But for three months a year, Aberdeen, South Dakota is dependent on pheasant hunters. Hmm. And they, they, the business community understood that and started to get together and said, what can we do to increase more pheasant hunters, to better cater to pheasant hunters, and to really make this a destination? And that community themselves started to put together uh, resources to, to get into farmers' hands to open up more public areas mm-hmm. around the city. Resources meaning money. Dollars, yeah. yeah. Dollar bills. Straight cash homie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are from the same generation, right. aren't yeah. we? <laughs> but the, the city, you know, that, that community recognized what so many more communities are starting to recognize and really what the future of our industry is. Mm-hmm. That when we can augment the rest of our economy with this three month bird economy, mm-hmm. we can do so much more as a community and us as conservationists, we need to facilitate that. And we need to foster those communities to embrace these, this pheasant economy mm. and, and the pheasant culture realistically. So for folks that have ever hunted in Northern South Dakota, it's kind of a turquoise blue sign that is um that are on these properties these community properties that uh largely they're kind of built off of crp most of the time right so it's crp land that a private landowner is enrolled and then the community and this was a lot of times the state has um um, paid to open up some but then also the community adds in dollars to incentivize more adoption right and then all of a sudden you get more and more acres of private land open as walk-in access. Yes. And it started in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and now it's in Boy. Mitchell. Yep, and, and there's three communities. I uh, think 
is it Huron, the I, other one? Boy, I can't think of it right And I, now. I know they're talking about it in, in southern Iowa, too. That's, it's just a great opportunity. I mean, anybody that's gone to those hunting atlases for those states knows the first thing you do is you zoom way out mm-hmm. to the area that you reasonably want to go to, and then you start looking for dots on maps, and as you zoom in tighter and tighter and tighter, you look for the, the complexes of red and blue and yellow, yep. and you focus in on those areas. Yeah. And, uh, again, Aberdeen got that right off the bat. So uh, without um, diving into a complete episode about public land acquisition, but it is a passion point, and a lot of listeners love it. You know, you've been involved with um, a whole bunch of them. I mean, from the Utah, there we had a land acquisition there, and multiple in, in, in Montana, the Teton River, Coffee Creek, and Wolf river yep and you know the iowa and iowa yep so i mean there's again two hundred thousand plus acres that we've bought and then now generally speaking we turn them over to the states and they become a wma or we turn them over to the feds and it becomes a wpa waterfall production area game production area or whoever you know whatever the acronym is um just quick lightning sort of question what what properties immediately come to your mind that are like that one is stunning or that's something that every member that's ever sent in a 35 dollar check should go see boy the one that comes to my mind i I mentioned idaho for a reason uh we bought the marty tract uh boy i can't even tell you what the date was it's been five years or more Mm -hmm. ago um, and this was a piece of property that was going to be developed for potato farming. It, um, it had been held by a family. There was, there was a little bit of, of uh, flood irrigation ag happening on the piece of property. It was largely grazed, um, had some water rights on it, but was really threatened to have pivots put on it and, and turn into potato country. Hmm. Um, the cool thing about that property is to the west, there's thousands, 10,000 acres of state-owned wildlife management area in the Mud Lake uh, unit. And this is a large lake that's a significant percentage of the shorebirds in the country through that flyway use that area Hmm. for a migration corridor. Uh, To the east is a Fish and Wildlife Service uh, National Wildlife Refuge called Camas Creek. That's, again, 10,000 acres of, of beautiful elk habitat. Uh, and, and upland bird or in waterfowl habitat. And then you've got this space in between. We connected those two. Hmm. Pheasants Forever connected those two pieces of public access by buying this, this part in the middle. Um, really great things. We, we were able to restore a, a significant chunk of it to uh, bird habitat, upland bird and waterfowl habitat that that again is open. The curlew population is booming. If you've ever been out there when they come, uh, they come in droves to, to those uh, flood irrigated pastures where they can just pluck invertebrates till they're blue in the face. Hmm. Um, really cool piece of property, really great example of, of, of partnership. Uh, the state now ha- owns that piece of property. We were able to, to use some match on that property to, to get another knocker grant to do another really cool acquisition. Hmm. Uh, just the the value of that one piece of property extends well beyond the investment that we were put into it. Hmm. One thing that I'm glad you talked about Idaho, um, not only because I probably talked Minnesota too much, but um, you, you were a voice that a lot of our members 
west of the Mississippi will really appreciate, not just from your Wyoming roots and um, your passion for the West and your involvement in the Sage Grouse Initiative and beyond, uh, but you're you're also a member of the Intermountain West Joint Venture. What 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 does that mean to somebody that's never heard um, <laughs> IWJV? IWJV. Before? Yeah, it's sort of a nebulous term and and a bit of a nebulous concept. But uh, the the Intermountain Flyway is a is a huge migratory corridor for waterfowl that come through, you know, through the Great Salt Lake that go down through. Um, Northeast California, Southern Oregon. Um, there's a there's a place called Sonic down there, which is stands literally for Southern Southern Oregon, Northeast California, hmm. um, and it, a high high population of all the pintails in the country migrate through that one spot. It's a few thousand um, a, a few thousand acres. It's flooded when they come through there. Their energy dependence on that particular spot on the map is significant, and if that goes away, this population of birds hmm. goes away largely. So, uh, Great Salt Lake, same deal. Uh, migratory corridors, huge stop-off location for those birds to refuel before they head south. Right. So, this Intermountain West is a it's a it's a different space. Um, it's the largest joint venture in the country. There's there's 13 western states that touch the Intermountain West joint venture. Hmm. Uh, and all the state fish and wildlife agencies uh, from those eight, from those states, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service has three different regional offices that touch the Intermountain West Joint Venture. So the directors of those three uh, regional offices sit on the board. Uh, Audubon has a, has a seat on the board. Ducks Unlimited has a seat on the board. We have a seat on the board. Hmm. Um, there's four private landowners that sit on those boards that are significant uh, members of their local communities as well and, and um, speak for agriculture and the conservation um, benefits of agriculture across the Intermountain West. So this group uh, you know, gets together and meets and we talk about ways that we can collaboratively benefit habitat in the Intermountain West. And sage grouse is a, is a big initiative of the Intermountain West joint venture. It's what we really joined the joint venture to be a part of. Mm. Um, and the sage grouse initiative and some offshoots from the, from Bureau of land management, um, BLM owns, you know, the half of the West really. Mm. Um, and an awful lot of the sage habitats. So we're working with BLM and they have some seats on the, the joint venture management board as well, working with them to do a ton of sage grouse habitat work, um, through a variety of partners, you know, we're talking Conoco Phillips and Rocky mountain power and big time industry that recognizes the importance of, of this bird on these landscapes and has invested hmm. in those, those landscapes. So a really cool opportunity for the organization to stretch our mission, a really cool opportunity to touch on some Western quail species that, uh, we all know and love, and we all want to go out and find a way to chase at some point. Right. Um, well, and it's also, you know, like you, you say stretch our mission and some folks get alarmed like, well, you talked a lot about waterfall there, right? And, and when Dave Nomson retired, we talked about Dave's role on North American Wetland Conservation X Council. Like, isn't that all about ducks? And, you know, we, we've got multiple people on joint venture, like Matt Holland, I believe, sits on the Prairie Pothole joint venture. And it isn't all about ducks. That's that's why we're on there because there is, again, we, I think in this country and the general public, we tend to try to compartmentalize everything so, so much, sure. right? And you think 
joint ventures largely started because of ducks, but that's not kind of the the end point, right? And it, it resorts back to everything we learned in third grade about the web of life. Sure, right? As you talk about Intermountain Joint Venture in the in the West, in this connection between sage grouse and and it does all this habitat does intersect in all these species, even in. I'm sure you talk elk, right, and, sure. and pronghorns, because oh, by the way, they migrate too, right? Yes. So it, it is; it does connect beyond just what people think is. Well, that's that. The purpose behind that is waterfall. Yeah, and you know, ducks. A bunch of ducks nest in the grass that surrounds mm-hmm. those those wetland basins. Um, Eastern South Dakota is a place you think of pheasants, right? But mm-hmm. Eastern South Dakota is in the middle of the prairie pothole region, and there's wetlands and the duck factory that runs right through right. all of our favorite places for pheasants. Habitat's multiple benefits. Yeah. Um, whether we're talking about web-footed creatures or ones that like to run from us, uh, we want to we benefit them all. So we've talked um, a fair amount about you know, habitat through land acquisition and, and, and through federal farm program, um, which, again, is a huge component of the chief conservation officer's role. I want to circle back. One of, one of the highlights through your quote-unquote grant work is you, in the last couple of years, had to testify or you had the opportunity to testify um, in front of the House Ag Committee. So again, that ties back to another piece here, the advocacy component of your role. Um, tell us about testifying in front of Congress. It's and, terrifying. <laughs> and, so how far back was this? So two years? Uh, this has been five years ago. Oh, okay, it was uh, long, longer than yep, I thought. It, uh, we got the call uh, to be a, a supporting witness um, in the House Ag Conservation Subcommittee to talk about uh, the farm bill and about farm bill programs and about technical assistance and delivering those to producers. Uh, and as we as we looked around at, at who could give that testimony, somehow, I, <laughs> one way or the other, uh, the committee ended up picking me and, and uh, asked me to come to come testify. And it was a, it was an intimidating experience. I'm not going to lie to anybody. That that's scary. There, everybody's mm. up on the pedestal, literally in front of you. Uh, there's a clock that hammers down, a digital clock that hammers in red, from five minutes down to zero, and your mic gets cut off when when you run out of time. Mm. Uh, and there's there's congressmen coming and going. It's something. It it's a terrifying experience, but something that um, you just it's a it's the kind of experience you can't recreate. Mm. And I was just so honored by the opportunity to do that, but to talk about the importance, you know, to talk about our programs, mm-hmm. PF and QF pioneered technical assistance to producers and people recognize that Congress recognized that for that moment. Mm. Um, and, and that's really cool. That's really humbling to think about that. Our little pheasant organization is doing something that's getting the attention of Congress, but we are. And we have for years. It, when I've watched those on TV, and I'll be honest, I don't watch too many of those on <laughs> TV. But, but when I have watched them on TV, they feel they feel like the the questions are pretty prepared that they're asking you, and I don't always feel like they're listening to the answers that they're they you know they're elected. They just want to ask the question, get it on record, and move to the next person. What? 
what was your impression out there? Did you feel like they were connected to the conversation? There's a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, you know, the you submit testimony, written testimony before you go in, and then you have the option of just reading your written testimony or trying to trying to play it by ear. Mm -hmm. um, I tried to do the latter and did it okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a, again, it's intimidating. Um, but once you kind of get your feet under and then can engage the chairman, you're only talking to the chairman in these committees, mm -hmm. even though everybody's around you, it's a, it's a conversation with the chairman. And the chairman was engaging uh, during my experience. Who was it? Oh, boy. I think you just asked me that question. Uh, he's from <laughs> Pennsylvania. I'll come up with the name okay. and get back to you. But uh, he knew our organization. He loved our organization. Mm. Um, he was supportive of the Pennsylvania CREP program mm. and had asked me a couple questions about getting how we can deliver better to landowners with the CREP program if they could authorize more acres. Um, and so, you know, he definitely knew what we were talking about. He was engaged. He had done his homework, uh, and he wanted a conversation. Yeah. yeah. So cool. it was fantastic. Good. Uh, the last kind of piece to the puzzle as you kind of built your, your way, um, professionally, your resume to this career step, uh, was the addition of your MBA. Yeah, late in life, not late in life. I'm, I'm <laughs> not, not that late. I'm not in late life. in life yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, a little bit into my career here, um, I was managing a government grant portfolio at that time that was probably about $30 million mm -hmm. uh, and had a team of a half dozen people that, that did the accounting and, and contracting and administration of, of those grants. And I realized that I needed a better understanding of the business operation. Mm. Uh, I had picked up here and there, um, fairly astute at, at the business side of it, but really just needed that formal training and a better understanding of, of how businesses work, of how all the pieces fit together. Mm -hmm. You know, even the simple pieces like, well, simple, but, you know, the accounting components and how that ties into a financial statement and how, the, how a board of directors would read a financial statement. Mm -hmm. Uh, so went back and, and started a, a master's of business administration with a finance emphasis to try to really round out my, my experience, uh, and had just a, a great experience. Hmm. went to Hamlin university. Um, I think we've got another connection to Hamlin. Yeah, Meredith, my wife used to work there. <laughs> yeah. So went and did an MBA at Hamlin university, uh, and, and had an incredible experience, um, at that university, learned an awful lot about how this business fits together, not just ours, but how all, all businesses work. Um, and that really gave me the ability to, to sit in the seat that I sit in now. I, I honestly don't believe that I could hold this position without that MBA because I really couldn't see how the puzzle pieces fit together quite as well as mm -hmm. I do now. It, it, there does feel, this is good, probably a preposterous statement, <laughs> But I'll call the comment. A <laughs> couple of 13, 14 common <laughs> uh, statements. But the, the there seems like there is actually parallels between bio, biological sciences and finance. Just and I, I do revert it back to the analytical side of um, thought process because, it, you know, numbers don't lie science doesn't lie. I right. mean, it, it seems parallel there, more so than marketing, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Howard will tell you that uh, accountants have a lot of data, but boy, those biologists really know how to crank <laughs> it out. 
Uh, and he's not wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, biology is all about creating a statistically significant number that mm-hmm. you've got to defend and, and, you know, going into to literature and, yeah, they do run the same direction. They don't always speak the same language. <laughs> and, and that was really uh, an understanding I got, I came to that I needed to be able to speak the language of an accountant. I mm-hmm. needed to be able to speak to our CFO uh, in his words and, and translate that to our, our vice president of field operations mm-hmm. in his words um, mm-hmm. and really be able to bounce back and forth between those worlds. And that's been really the one thing that made the biggest difference in my career. Uh, and, I, and I really attribute this position to that decision yeah. uh, and the work that, that I did at Hamlin. You know, one of the things as, we, as I prepped for this, um, you know, I, I, listeners know I kind of prep with outline and get in and figure out where I'm going to take the conversation. And, you know, we've, we've, you've mentioned you know, Ken Higgins at SDSU and Bill Baxter at, in Nebraska as sort of mentors, critical um, connectors in, in your um, career. And you you listed another gentleman. And the note here is inspiration comes from unique places. <laughs> right. Tell me about the, tell me about Dan Lehman. Dan Lehman uh, was a professor of critical thinking and strategic financial analysis um, at Hamlin, which is not something you would think of is going to be all that beneficial to you in, in a, a conservation organization. But Dan did an incredible job of forcing us to be introspective and of, um, you know, when I talk about reading a financial statement and I talk about truly understanding what it means to the company, he took that understanding to a completely different level. It wasn't about generating that statement and it wasn't about seeing the words on the statement, but understanding the meaning behind that and really deriving the future value of, of that financial statement. And Mm. I actually got a heck of a lot out of his strategic financial analysis class. We did a, we did a project on Costco uh, to determine if it was a sustainable business. And this is five years ago, so I think they're doing okay now. <laughs> but, uh, They'll be glad to know that you approved. Right, we, we did approve. Um, but, you know, it, it, finance is all about uh, uh, predicting a future and predicting, you know, how interest rates are going to carry mm-hmm. through. And, and um, Dan really put us through our paces and, and forced us to think deeply at this organization that everybody just assumed was good. Mm. Um, and everybody comes to different, uh, you know, the thing about finance is you won't get the same answer from two different people because their assumptions are different. Mm. So everybody comes to a different conclusion and it's maybe minute or it might be, you know, we had people that thought they weren't going to make it. Mm. In um, other words, the numbers do lie. Right. <laughs> just, <laughs> what do you want the number you, to be, you, right? <laughs> Uh, but Dan really forced us to be critical in our thought process. And it was about formulating a question, go back and formulate a question. And we'd come to an answer and he'd say, no, you didn't think enough about Mm. formulating a question. And he'd throw it back to us. And it was frustrating. Hmm. Um, and it was time consuming. Um, and Dan didn't at all come from the same cloth that I did. Uh, he was a controller in, in big business for a while, um, Hmm. for his entire career and then an educator and, um, but he, you know, of all the, of all the folks that I worked with at Hamlin, um, hmm. he, he taught me the most about me. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, all right. Let's talk a little bit about your new role. Again, 
we won't go too deep because you're four <laughs> days in. Right. <clears throat> but I got a lot to talk about in the new <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, let's start by we'll go. I will go back to Howard's quote. So the goal of the chief conservation officer, the, this is the very first time this position has ever been in place. The goal is to better align our organization's leadership with our conser- conservation delivery functions under one shared vision. So explain the conservation delivery functions for folks that might, you know, that, that sounds insider baseball, right? So what, what does that mean to the average member? You bet. So our mission has three primary pillars. There's the habitat pillar. Uh, there's education and outreach, which, you know, is about new, bringing new hunters along. Um, and then there's the advocacy pillar, which mm-hmm. is government affairs and all the things that go along with that. Um, we've got great people in every one of those mission pillars and we do incredible things have for, uh, since we started, Mm -hmm. um, in every one of those arenas. And so when you look at the organization and you say, you guys are killing it, why do we need to, to, to do anything different? Um, you know, Howard and and the executive team and the board of directors kind of came to a revelation that, yeah, everybody's doing amazing things individually. But what could happen if we find a way to let those play off one another? What could happen if we put those, all that energy that everybody's expending in the same places on the map mm-hmm. and really, really, really drill down everybody into one specific spot? And, and boy, you just start to think about how cool that could be, mm-hmm. right? If we took all of our energy that we, that we spread out through, through the various spots of, you name it, the Great Plains in, in and drilled into Aberdeen, South Dakota and said, okay, we're going to put some oomph behind the Aberdeen mm-hmm. Pheasant Coalition. What could happen there? And it's mind blowing. I mean, really the, the amount of energy that we could put into one spot and the amount of impact that we could have in one spot and the energy that we can create in that community to protect those resources permanently is just, it, it would be an incredible opportunity. And it taps into all three of those pillars, Definitely. the community habitat rest, or, um, um, the coalition is a it's habitat right yes. creating habitat for wildlife there's an access component which is tied directly to legacy or um, advocacy right yep and if you have more places to go and more birds it's a education and outreach and an, it's an r3 connector yes there, and there's places like that all over the country mm-hmm. um, we talk about the economic impact to aberdeen south dakota you know, Albany, Georgia is the same way. And it's, there's a <laughs> you map. You said it right. I did. I got it. <laughs> there's a map sitting right behind me right now that shows, uh, you know, Albany and all the. Thomasville. All the, yep. All the quail country. Um, but it's, it's huge. And mm-hmm. the value to those communities is huge. Um, so our goal here is to, to align those mission pillars, to put them in the same spots, to align the energy of all those incredible people that are doing incredible things to do even more incredible mm-hmm. things in one place. So folks know me. They know that I'll throw out a baseball analogy at some point. <laughs> it's, it's really a – have you read Moneyball? Yes. It's, it, it's a lot like Billy Bean taking Sabre metrics to baseball with this position because it is it's, – it's more than just, you know, what the designated hitter is going to do in the four hole. You know, it's how – the entire team can play off each other in the lineup and it tweaking the knobs in a way that doesn't necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily the approach that was there in 2002. 
it's 2021 and beyond. Right. It's, um, it is. It's, it's nothing different than what we're doing. Um, we've got all the right things. We're, we're acquiring land and permanence. We're doing private land work around those. We're engaging a new generation of hunters and anglers. We're engaging uh, federal and state policymakers in, in all these places. But it's really about finding those strategic landscapes, mm-hmm. the places where we can have the most impact and honing in on those places where we can have the most impact and then supporting those communities that support that pheasant economy mm. and that pheasant culture. Um, and quail. And quail, absolutely. Okay. So, you know, it's, we've got to spend time uh, as an organization building that cohesion, building those complementary teams, allowing those, those incredible individuals to play off one another. Um, you mentioned it earlier. I think we have, what, 268 biologists? We have 268 biologists out of 380. So, rough number, we're 70% of every employee... And this doesn't even account for like uh, Jim Inglis, who's been on the podcast before, who um, doesn't have the word biologist in his title, but he's got a biology degree. So at at the minimum, 70% of all of our employees have a biology degree. That to me, I don't have a biology degree, but that's (laughs) something I'm incredibly proud of. Tell me what that means to you. Well, you know, we've got, we've got amazing people, uh, 268 biologists means we have more biologists than any state fish and wildlife agency in the country. Is that right? Yeah. We've got huh. the, the only employer that has more biologists than, than PFQF is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service right now. No kidding. So we've got an incredible team. Um, we've, they've, they're well-trained. They understand the biology of, of pheasants and quail. They know what needs to be done for this bird, and they know how to do it on the landscape. Mm. Um, we get a lot of questions about, you know, if only, if you only engage in, in this bit of research, we can help understand, you know, whatever it is. Sure. We chose a different path. We, we hired the people that already understood it and said, let's go out and pursue it. Let's go out and deliver it and implement it. And this organization is the habitat organization because that's where we focus our energy. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, we're hiring people that understand how to deliver habitat and we're asking them to go out and deliver habitat every day. And I'm super proud of the team that we put out there. Uh, and the, the quality of the biologists, I mean, there's 268 biologists at least. I would bet you if we counted them up, there's a hundred master's degrees Mm. among that team of biologists. They're, they're well-trained, they're talented, they're passionate. Yeah. Uh, and, and they deliver. And you know, I'll reiterate their, that keyword, they're passionate. I mean, they're, they live this and it goes beyond just the biologists. When the employees of this organization, this is a lifestyle that we all live more than a career. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's not a person on the team. Um, you, you couldn't do this work if you weren't passionate about this work. Um, and passionate about the long-term benefits that we're trying to create. And every one of them just loves it. There's no more energizing moment than sitting at one of our staff meetings and watching, 270 biologists talk yeah. to one another. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a marketing guy, I say maybe that's a little bit of a preposterous <laughs> statement in and of itself. We've got to work on your, <laughs> on your second language there as a biologist, Bob. But uh, 
it's it's really amazing to watch this group work, and uh, I'm so incredibly honored to to be in a position where I can help lead this incredible team. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thankful to to Howard and to this executive team and to our board of directors for for creating this opportunity, having the foresight to recognize what a chief conservation officer can do for the organization, and you know, giving me the chance to do that. Yeah. Well. I'm excited, and I hope our listeners are, are energized by hearing your background and your enthusiasm and your perspective. Uh, I was honored to be on the um, interview panel that interviewed all of our talented, extremely talented. Oh, I mean, man. it was a it, no uh, no knock on you, but it was a really, really, really challenging decision, as you can imagine. Definitely. All those all those degrees and um, articulate, passionate people that um, have made it to, to the interview process. Um, and, and you came out um, as the first ever um, chief conservation officer. So Making me sweat over your Yeah, mouth. well, um, and I'm looking out, out the window, and, and we're winding down your very first week, and I'm thinking, well, Sarah's probably wondering how you closed <laughs> out the week. Well, you closed it out with a podcast, um, but I genuinely appreciate the time. And, and um, folks that are, are members of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever should know that they have, they just um, gained a, a really passionate warrior for for conservation in, in Ron Leathers with the addition of this. And, and I'll, I guess I'll, I'll leave the, the episode with um, kind of your closing thoughts. Uh, you know, one of the questions I asked you is to think about is if you have a guiding, um, guiding principle that uh, is going to lead you on this path as the first CCO. Well, you know, you've said uh, you can't do a podcast without a baseball analogy. <laughs> And uh, anybody who knows me knows that I can't do a podcast or even have a conversation without a cowboy analogy. And I <laughs> firmly believe the world needs more cowboys. But, uh, you know, one of the one of the great books that I read uh, is Cowboy Ethics by James P. Owen. And uh, he talks about writing for the brand. Mm. And that's the kind of um, that's what I'm trying to create on this team. And that's what I've always lived my career by. It's, it talks about bilateral loyalty, this reciprocal loyalty between, uh, you know, really on a ranch, it's between the ranch owner and the cowboys that work for him. Mm. Um, those cowboys literally ride to protect the brand that those cattle wear. Um, they're loyal to that rancher. They're loyal to that operation. Um, and they do everything they can literally to protect those cattle. Mm. Uh, and in return, that rancher gives them a place to live. He pays them a fair wage. He engages them in management of that or of that ranch operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gives them a chance to do something bigger than themselves as part of a team. Uh, and that's what we're going to pursue as the conservation operations team. Mm. So that's kind of the, that's I, our guiding principle. That's the way that I like to live my life. And, and I firmly believe it. You're going to hear it every time. Yeah, probably I'm on a podcast, but the world's, the world needs more cowboys and <laughs> the world. Well, I, I don't disagree with that, especially how in depth I am in the Longmire and the CJ <laughs> box stories right now, because, um, I, I wish I was a cowboy, but I put on a cowboy hat and I feel like a Woody from Toy Story. <laughs> hey everybody. I just can't pull it off, but, but I do love, and I don't think the world uses the phrase riding for the brand enough. Um, I, <laughs> this is an odd thing, but it, to me, so, somehow I think 
I heard that first from Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Packers. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> which He's ruined it which for me. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, nevertheless, I do think that that's um, a wonderful guiding principle that, you know, when, when you're passionate about an organization and believe where you work, you should ride for the brand. I mean, it's part of who you are, and you should be proud of that, and you should invest in it emotionally and and purposefully and um so i'm wholeheartedly on board with you i want to be a cowboy ron well <laughs> we'll go find a place to put you on a horse and take a couple pictures we can podcast about that another day <laughs> yeah. thanks for doing this you bet thanks yeah. for having me i'm yeah. excited congratulations look forward to mm-hmm. uh what the future has in store for pheasants for quail and um for for all bird hunters and conservationists out there thanks, it's gonna Bob. be exciting all right, folks, um, I hope you are as excited as I am. Ron is going to do amazing things because he is, uh, he's got a wonderful philosophy but an even better team, those 270 biologists all across the country. You've heard a lot of their names um, on this podcast over the years, and you'll hear a lot more of their names going forward. Uh, they are the heart and soul of the uh, organization um, that, that helps our volunteers who are the blood of the organization, the lifeblood of us, um, all those volunteers, that collaboration between the, the, the team of biologists, the field team, the employees, and the volunteers makes this organization absolutely magical. So I invite you to join us, pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. If you are not yet a member, please become a member. We need you to be involved. Uh, Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I am Bob St. Pierre saying, always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thank you.